Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. On tonight's show, we talk to the CEO of WCM. Now, this is a US fund with two funds listed on the Australian stock market. And this fund management company is one of the best performers in the world. And as I say, it's on the ASX. The CEO is Paul Black and is a great thinker and a great talker, uh, like a lot of Americans that I know. And then we have the CEO of Zip Mary Diamond, whose share price spiked 68% in three days last week. Larry's insights on where this business, which basically is a competitor to Afterpay, and where it's going, is very, very insightful. And then we have a panel looking at real estate investment trusts in a world dominated by the coronavirus crash. Uh, we talked to a portfolio manager from APN Property, that's Mark Mozzarello, and then we talked to Matt Cleary, who's regional director at Urbis. Both give you some insights on what might be happening if you're invested in A-REITs in particular. So without any further ado, let's catch up with Paul Black from WCM. I'm joined now by the CEO and Portfolio Manager of WCM Investment Management, which is a fund management group out of Laguna Beach in California, and they have uh, listed products uh, on the Australian stock market as well. Paul Black, thanks for joining us, mate. Thank you, Peter. Great to be here again. Paul, before we get into you know, your great performance for the fund, a lot of people would wonder, how does someone become you? How does someone become a, a, a CEO and portfolio manager of a significant fund management company? So why don't you just give us, a, in a nutshell, where Paul Black came from and how you ended up where you are today? What a terrific question, because it goes to one of our mantras here at WCM, which is 95% of life is showing up, showing up day after day after day after day and just keep doing the best job you can you know when i look back at my 30 odd years in the business starting at uh, a bank here in the states called bank of america which was the largest bank in the world in 1983 when i started uh, soon to almost be extinct in 1987 when we had the the, the kind of the shock crash uh, and i started in the business uh, in the trust division of a bank not even knowing that there was anything called a portfolio management firm or a money management firm. And, you know, fortunately by showing up every day throughout my life, keep doing a good job, meet the right people at the right time. And 30 odd years ago, I met one of the founders of the firm that we now own uh, and he brought me into the business and I started at every low level job in the organization, did it, well and kept progressing slowly over time to the point where uh, eventually 10 years ago became the uh, co-CEO and president of the firm. But I will tell you, uh, do I have talent? Yeah, I've got some talent. Am I fairly bright? I'm pretty bright. Uh, but you know what? At the end of the day, I got a couple of lucky breaks. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it's really important, I think, for people that are in positions that that might be enviable in some respects to acknowledge that you know what i got lucky i got lucky i did all the things you're supposed to do but there are a lot of people that do all the things they're supposed to do and they don't end up uh you know 
being able to do something they love every day of their life with a group of people that they love working with. So I've been very fortunate and blessed. I'm not sure if it was Gary Plyer or Lee Trevino, but one of them said that the more I practiced, the luckier I got. Yeah, I think that was Gary Player. You're yeah. exactly right. Uh, yeah. And you know, it didn't happen overnight. It's funny, you know, people look at our firm now, we're $55 billion US. And they think, boy, that's unbelievable. You guys, you guys are successful. Well, you know what? And, and, and it, to them, it looks like it happened overnight. It didn't happen overnight. It was grinding every day for 30 years to finally figure out a different way of doing things, a different way of approaching the equity markets. And that different way led to success, but it took an awfully long time to do it. Nothing happens overnight or very little good happens overnight. For you personally, Paul, were there eureka moments when you, you learnt something that became critically important to your talent now, or were there people who you either met or you were influenced by? I know Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, as a young man said, he didn't have anyone who could be his mentor, so he read great books like the books that Peter Drucker wrote and he kind of presumed that Drucker was giving him advice as he read the book. Did you, do you have either people directly linked to you or other people? And I know in the case for me, Buffett was a, a very big influence yes. in the way I invest. But were there yes. people or things that were said to you that changed you and gave you this lucky break? No, you know, I, I think you're right, Peter. For me, it was books. It was... Um, about 20 years ago, I started reading all the classics, right? Intelligent Investor by, by Graham and Dodd. And, and, and really the only thing you need to focus on there are two chapters, Margin of Safety and Mr. Market. If you read those thoroughly and you understand them and get them, it's a huge advantage. Uh, Phil Fisher's Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, uh, one of Buffett's favorite books as well, uh, was a huge uh, teacher to me and really everyone in this firm about how important the qualitative side of analyzing a business has happens to be. And then of course, you know, you, you've got to read Buffett's uh, essays and letters. I think it was Lawrence Cunningham who put together the essays of Warren Buffett. Uh, I try to read that every couple of years. It's, it's all his best letters and his best points. And you just keep kind of going through the, the fundamentals of what creates wealth over time. And there's only a few basic concepts. I mean, one of them is every great investor uh, usually has a focused portfolio of no more than 40 names. They, they focus on their best ideas. Uh, they know those companies really well and they keep after it and they give them a long time to perform. And not a long time is not a month or two or three or a year. A long time is decades. So, you know, and it's so interesting in this day and age, everyone thinks in terms of days, not even quarters or, or, or years, and, and what creates wealth. You look at all the people that you know, Peter, that have made extraordinary amounts of money. They made it by doing the same thing for 30 years. And they did it through really hard periods of time. They hung in there, they showed up, and they kept doing it. And when the good times came, they were able to capitalize on it. So yeah, books definitely, uh, life experiences of seeing how people create wealth over time, which is again, as I said, showing up every day for 30 years. Uh, you know, you have the best opportunity to achieve your goals if you do that. Yeah. I know Jerry Harvey, who owns Harvey Norman, the department store here in Australia, 
he said to me that uh, one of the best things he did as a young man was to hang out with a whole lot of old people who could teach him stuff. And yes, uh, yes, I'm, I'm sure yeah. both you and I have been in that sort of situation. Ab absolutely, absolutely. So reading a lot. I mean, there's just no substitute for reading and thinking. Uh, and again, it's contrary to what we get today, which is a lot of information that's very difficult to digest. That's not as important as really reading the classics. Okay, mate, let's get down to um, having a look at your performance. You know, we're halfway through arguably one of the worst years ever. Um, the coronavirus uh, worldwide has made 2020 an unforgettably bad year, but we also had the bushfires here in Australia. Yes. How has your portfolio actually fared so far this year, Paul? You know, it's phenomenally well, um, better than we could have hoped. You know, just to give you kind of a ballpark, and I'll kind of back into this. If you look at our global portfolio that we run for a lot of people in Australia, uh, year to date through today, we're up almost 10%. That, now that's stunning when you think that the market itself, if you measure it by the global indices or ACWI, is down 5.6%. So we're about, we're almost 150% better than what the market in general has delivered. Uh, and and it, it, it's been uh, on both sides. In the first quarter when the market was down 23%, uh, we were down only 16%. It was still a lot, but we were down a lot less than the market. And the, the, the really nice side of the portfolio is we did make a couple of moves in the portfolio. So when the market's risen, and people won't believe this, but so far this year, if you look at the general global indices, so far this quarter, I mean, uh, the market's up about 20%. And we are up 25.5%. Uh, you know, so we've done really well. And you know, Peter, that we really build these portfolios to protect people in difficult markets. But you, of course, always want to participate in the upside. And when I think about all the fear two months ago that, that you could taste in the air when people were talking about the markets and what was going on, what was going to happen economically, you know, that's when people should be acting and taking advantage of opportunities. It's very difficult to do, but it's one of the reasons that you hire a professional manager because the professional manager, I think it's easier to disengage yourself from the fact that these are my personal assets and I've got to be, you know, very fearful or careful right now. You know, historically, and Peter, you've been through a lot of market cycles, the time to create wealth and make money is when everybody's afraid. Buffett says it all the time, right? Be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. So if you can take that fear and make it work for you, by buying these great businesses, when people are selling them cheaply, uh, you can position yourselves to do very, very well. You know, it's interesting. This is a very scary time for a lot of people, but this is the time when we earn the pay that people pay to us because we can generate good returns in this environment. I noticed here in Australia, when the panic was at its most, even the best of names fell because a lot of people just had to liquefy their assets and some people were so scared they had to. But right. The, but the great companies, the sort of companies that you guys would buy if you were only an Australian-only company, they really rebounded the fastest. They didn't stay down for very long. Explain to people who don't know much about you guys what kind of companies 
are in your portfolio and why they would be, have clearly given the, the percentage return you talked about, they must have been big rebounders. Yeah, the, the couple, yes. You know, what we look for, uh, and everybody in our business, as you know, Peter, says that they want to buy a high quality business. And usually the way they define high quality is, you know, they're very, they have very clean balance sheets, no debt, lots of returns on their assets and their capital. Usually a quality company is a company that's well known, that has a brand, um, some kind of franchise. And, and uh, you know, that's typically what people focus on. What we focus on are all those things, but more importantly, we want to try to own businesses where the company itself is getting stronger from a competitive advantage side. We talk a lot about the idea that we want to own companies where the competitive advantage is likely to get stronger over the next decade versus weaker. And if you own those businesses, that are likely to take share because they're positioned better in difficult times, that's gonna translate into a very good stock return. So when you looked at the dislocations in the market, there were a lot of high quality companies, as you said, Peter, that sold off 40 or 50% only because the general market sold off. And I'm thinking particularly about healthcare. Uh, a lot of the healthcare names, you know, medical device companies like Stryker or Boston Scientific that make stents for the heart, or make uh, knees and artificial knees and hips, they got dragged down with the general market out of pure fear. Uh, and mostly because people thought, hey, you know what? We're not gonna be doing elective surgeries anytime soon. Okay, that's true. But the businesses themselves did not radically change overnight. And the reality is sooner rather than later, people are going to be getting new hips. They're gonna be getting stents in their hearts and they're going to be getting new knees. And so those businesses, you could buy uh, at a 50% discount to where they were a couple of months ago. And if you, you know, again, long enough time frame, you're gonna do well. They've already snapped back pretty powerfully. And if you think about it, people are not gonna go long without replacing their knees, hips, or putting a stent in their heart. Very simple, very straightforward, a lot of fear. We took advantage of it. And I think, uh, you know, there's a name that we own in the global portfolio, but we don't own it in, in, the, in the Australia, which is, near and dear to Australia, which is CSL, plasma company. Uh, they might have a, a very um, interesting opportunity here with plasma as we address this uh, COVID-19 crisis. And in most of our portfolios, ex-Australia, we added that name as well. So we like a lot of the names in the high quality healthcare area. Mm. Uh, I can remember when uh, Jeff Bezos was being interviewed, uh, he, he, he reflected upon the dot-com crash and I think he said that um, the share price dropped from $100 to $6 nearly overnight. And he said to the interviewer, he said, you know, our, our business hadn't changed one bit. You know, the, yes. people, the people who bought books and videos and DVDs, he said, they hadn't changed at all because of the dot-com crash, but the market really had changed the valuation of our company. Oh, yes. And, you know, Peter, I say this all the time. If most people approach the stock market or the equity markets the same way they approach buying a piece of real estate that they're going to live in, mm. they would have much greater outcomes. Because with real estate, you buy a house in a nice neighborhood or a not so nice neighborhood and you own it and you're going to own it for probably 10 years or 20 years. You never look at the price every day or every 15 minutes. You just know that over time, I'm going to do pretty well in this place. And that's how people need to approach the equity markets. And they just don't do it because 
they can look at their stock quotes every 15 minutes. And while that's great because you have liquidity, it's not so great for the temperament of the average person. It causes them to be much more active in equity investing than they should be. One of your great fans has asked me to ask this question. Protecting capital in down markets is something the WCM Quality Global Growth Strategy has done very well historically. Now talk to us about the downside capture, what it means and how it's benefited the portfolio this year. And also, how did you achieve this downside capture without moving to cash, which a lot right. of fund managers have done? Yeah, and, and you know, that whole idea of moving to cash is a, is a fool's game. Uh, you know it, Peter, you've seen it. Uh, it's just, it's, it's an absolutely impossible to, uh, to achieve success moving in and out of cash and in and out of stocks over time. Can't be done. If it could be done, trust me, Wall Street would build a product that was all about moving in and out of cash and in and out of stocks over time because they're about making money. But there is no product to that extent because it can't be done. So yeah, our focus on downside capture, as I mentioned earlier, you look at the benchmarks, the mark benchmarks are the, the market itself is down five and a half percent. We're actually up 9.6%. Um, we've done extremely well because of the kinds of companies we own. Owning those businesses that I mentioned earlier that actually are taking market share in difficult periods of time or periods of market dislocations tends to be a great way to protect your capital when things get choppy. And also when that market eventually turns, which it always will. And, and I will tell you, for all investors, it really pays to be optimistic about the future. No matter how bleak it might look out there, you know, there is this relentless pursuit of things getting better, certainly economically across the globe. So if you stay focused on a, on a very uh, kind of optimistic viewpoint, I think that serves you very well. Um, you know, just in general, don't lose as much on the downside, which we haven't means obviously you don't have to make up as much when the markets recover. So it's a good recipe. As I said, in the first quarter, we weren't down as much. Second quarter, we're actually up more. And the compound return over time is about 150% uh, better than what you would have gotten if you just bought the index across the globe. Paul, have you made any changes to the portfolio in response to the increased volatility? We have, we have. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I have mentioned that we are very focused on on the long term and we try to keep portfolio turnover at a very low level maybe 20 percent a year which means and by the way half of that is trimming positions and adding to positions the other half is trading out of, of stocks completely or businesses completely so maybe we trade five or six businesses a year uh, not many out of a stock the stock portfolio of 35 uh, but be when there are that period of dislocation, we took advantage of it. As I mentioned, we added to our positions in Boston Scientific and Stryker, a couple of healthcare companies. We also uh, uh, bought a really interesting name that was down about 70% from its highs. That's a little bit controversial to some people, mostly because they don't understand it, which is called Lululemon. Uh, Lululemon, as you know, is kind of the leisure wear, mm. uh, you know, franchise. Um, the couple things going for them, you know, as, as this whole kind of lockdown has happened. People are working from home. Yeah. People are working more casually. Their e-commerce business uh, is growing at over 25% a year and they've made a massive shift towards men. Men, yeah, men wearing business. Lululemon. Yeah. Yes, 
Yes. So <laughs> we bought that company at, uh, at when it was down about 70%. And I think, uh, I think through today, we bought it two months ago, I believe it's up roughly 100% so far. So, you know, got, got a great opportunity to buy that. Uh, there's also, you know, I, there's a company some of your, your people might have heard of called Ferrari. Uh, again, kind of an interesting name because, you know, a lot of people have this concern that, you know, wow, when this, this, this ec economy has trouble, people aren't going to go out and buy a Ferraris and that, and that is absolutely not true. Uh, they have a model that's basically built around premium pricing. What we found with luxury good companies, you know, a lot of people think about Ferrari as a, as an auto manufacturer. We think of it as more of a luxury goods producer. Mm. And what we, what we have found is there's a two year waiting list for a Ferrari and they, they manage that and they, and, and they create that demand because of the high ticket price, you, you know, so from our perspective to buy companies like that, that people really don't like, and they believe the short term is going to be difficult for them is the perfect place to enter into a position in that business. So that if you have a 10 year time horizon, you're likely to do very, very well. Yeah. Okay, mate. Um, you're also well known for using corporate culture as one of your investment criteria. Does culture become more or less important in extraordinary market conditions like we've seen so far this year? Oh, much, 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 much more important. It, you know, it, 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 it all to us, the ability of a business to grow its competitive advantage has everything to do with the core set of values in that business that animate what they do every day. So we really work hard on trying to make sure there's an alignment between the core values of the business and what they're trying to achieve from a strategy standpoint. And the more that you can find alignment between values and strategy, which leads to an increase in competitive advantage, the better your opportunities to make great returns. There are a lot of examples if we had more time where I could tell you how important corporate culture is to the long-term success. I don't care if it's a business, if it's a foundation, an endowment, a government entity, the values of that entity have everything to do with whether it's going to be successful going forward. And we put a lot of work into that. And it's very different because, you know, most people on Wall Street, all they want to do is crunch numbers. They think there's magic in crunching numbers. There's no magic there. 20 years ago, there might have been. Today, everybody has the same information. So unless you do something different, and in our case around expanding moats or competitive advantages and corporate culture, you're not going to get a different result. Yeah. Now, one last question, mate, and you and I agree on most things, but you might be surprised what I'm going to say here. I'm writing a story on the weekend and the headline is going to be, how could Buffett be so stupid? Now, <laughs> of, course, of course, that's the headline to get people to read it. I am going to conclude he's not being stupid at all. But some people would think so because he, he dumped um, airlines in America. Um, I think he took about, you take about a $10 billion hit as a consequence yes. of it. Yes. And that was May 4. And since then, airline um, share prices have rebounded extraordinarily. Yes. Now, talk, talk us through the fact that even someone as great as Warren could make a mistake and, and how people should, shouldn't think he's being stupid at all, but making a mistake like this is quite possible. Absolutely. And, and, and as you know, Peter, the, the, everybody makes mistakes, even the great Warren Buffett. And the idea is obviously to minimize those mistakes. Uh, you know, I actually think it's kind of, I, I was kind of shocked 
that uh, Buffett was not a big buyer uh, when that market pulled off really, really hard. It, it, it shocked me and he wasn't and he didn't move in. And they talked about kind of holding their powder or their, he's got $128 billion of cash on the balance sheet. I was shocked that he wasn't gobbling up a lot of these high quality businesses. So uh, yeah, you know, a little bit and uh, a little bit of a knee jerk reaction on his part, in my opinion, I can't really say that because he's Warren Buffett, but uh, you know, yes, people make mistakes and you know that there's no shame in that. The reality is in our business, minimize the mistakes, try not to make the same one over and over again. In other words, learn and, 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 and then just make sure that you have a few good ideas that really work over time. I guess and I, if you do, you'll be successful. Yeah, the last one is related to it. I think it's worth throwing in there that Buffett may well think there's going to be a serious second wave um, infections that results in lockdowns again. Now, right. and I know you guys don't think through the big macro issues because you're just looking for quality companies, but have you, have you been forced to think about what second wave infections might mean to closures and therefore the success of these great quality businesses that you are holding? I think if you're going to be invested, um, I'd rather be invested in the kinds of companies that we own in the event that that happens. I think, you know, I don't know. And as you said, we're not macro guys because we're inevitably always wrong on that. Uh, I think the probabilities of a second lockdown are, are pretty small, but let's just say that it happens. If it happens uh, and you have an investment portfolio, you don't run to cash now. Uh, you, you stay invested in those really high quality businesses with expanding moats supported by a culture that's aligned with the strategy. If you do that, you will sail right through this and 10 years from now, everything that we're experiencing this year and may experience later in the year is going to be a very, very small blip on the screen. The optimists win in life. They always win. So stay invested in these great businesses with really smart people running them and you will create an awful lot of wealth. Paul Black, WCM, thanks for joining us. Always great to be with you, Peter. Thank you. And by the way, I should add that WCM is a company that we brought to Australia to uh, list on the Australian Stock Exchange. Um, you know, clearly, they were brought here because of their performance. Um, they're now managed by Contango Asset Management. So you can go to contango.com.au for more details. There are two funds listed on the Australian stock market. One's called WCMQ and one's called WQG. Once again, thanks for joining us. Now, joining me, as I said earlier, is Larry Diamond, the founder and CEO of Zip. Larry, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's been a great week for you guys. Uh, I just had a quick, quick check. You're up about 68% uh, since Monday. And I know CEOs don't worry about um, share prices, but it's just good when the market likes what you're doing. It's been a big week for you. And I want to get to that in a second, why it has been a big week. But a lot of people always wonder, like, where do you people come from? And, and I happen to know one of your best rivals, namely Anthony Eisen from Afterpay. I taught him many years ago. So he comes <laughs> from Victoria Road, Bellevue Hill. Um, so um, and he's always been aspirational and I'm not surprised he's done what he's done. But I think I uh, interviewed you guys when your share price was about $1.20 or something like that. And you had a nice rise after that interview. You never sent me a Christmas card either, Larry. I, I was, it was <laughs> Peter's fault. Post. It wasn't you, it was Peter's fault. Yeah, yeah, but well, I think a lot of people wonder, where did you get the idea from mm -hmm. 
to do this? And why is Australia seemingly in the forefront of buy now, pay later businesses? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so, I mean, my background was in uh, technology and then and then finance. So I worked at uh, Macquarie and uh, Deutsche Bank, mm. and uh, you know, was fortunately made redundant there actually uh, in, uh, in 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 twenty twelve. So this is really the after first... the GFC in a sense. Yes, yeah, so I managed mm. to survive the GFC yeah. as there were layoffs and uh, recover, uh, and then ultimately things just didn't work out. Yeah. But a, a, a great learning background. So my background very much came from finance. Did a lot of work at Macquarie financial modelling, mm. understanding credit markets and also technology. I worked at Pacific Brands in the technology division, helping okay. Bonds Burley on their t tech strategy in the early days. Mm. So that sort of business analyst mind and, uh, and, and then obviously um, finance. Uh, when I was made redundant, I started doing a lot of work on what I should do next. It was quite a daunting experience mm. to work out what to do next. And thankfully managed to connect up with a friend of mine, uh, Greg, who, who, uh, who, who's the founder of Prosper. Uh, and, and was working very closely with him. And we started just discussing uh, some of the different models out there, you know, mm. the world of credit, payments. And I got really connected to the consumer finance world, this idea that it's really hard to acquire customers directly. The banks are spending hundreds of dollars to acquire customers. Uh, credit cards, we believe, were fundamentally broken. You know, it, we'd seen the success of G and Harvey Norman, who'd mm. done a great job at, at the interest-free proposition. And we just felt that a number of factors were sort of coming together uh, to to create something, create something new. You know, technology was just getting to that phase where you could actually onboard a customer, assess their risk in in microseconds. You know, mm. the ability to plug into retailers could now happen really, really quickly. Mm. Uh, and so, those factors sort of came together and gave me a lot of passion to uh, really disrupt the world of credit cards um, and ultimately build a long-term financial partnership with customers, but seeing payments as the access point. You know, so if you can catch them while they're, while they're shopping, mm. onboard them quickly, but then build up, you know, deliver an app and build up a great experience. With Are them. you feeling that there is substantial customer loyalty to Zip? Absolutely. Mm. And, and even Ilian, which is a uh, former Dun & Bradstreet, did a study earlier this year which surveyed customers and they found that uh, buy now, pay later customers had prefer, uh, preferenced repaying buy now, pay later over credit cards. Mm. And so we've had this theory which is to say, okay, particularly as we get into um, economic cycles such as now, what happens to consumer credit? And you know, our, our thesis is always that because the brand lives at checkout, it is where you are every day, shopping yeah. online, shopping yeah. in store. You have a very different relationship to it than the credit card sitting in your back pocket. Mm. And we do believe that we are enabling customers and they're building deep, deep loyalty with the app. Yeah, and uh, there are two questions in my head. I'll get the first one out. Mm -hmm. the second one's more related to what you just said then. But the first question is, um, you, you know, you work for Macquarie, and I know when I interviewed Alan Moss, the old CEO, many years ago, he actually explained to me that Macquarie's model was, in a sense, to encourage a lot of people within the, the organisation to think like a small business, be entrepreneurial, yep. think of things yep. that Macquarie could do that an entrepreneurial small business would do, but that you would give them, or he would give them the advantage of more capital yep. and information and competitive advantage information that other small businesses would never have. Did, did you learn from that or, or, or was it for osmosis? You saw what was going on and therefore you embraced it yourself. I think it's absolutely spot on. You know, I started there as a, as a graduate outside Nicholas Small's office. So that, you know, it was a glass office so you could see my screen. Yeah. And very new world for me. Uh, and absolutely that, that was the culture that we saw, this idea. And that's why you had a lot of longevity within, within, within the Macquarie family. Um, yeah. you know, 
EDs who have been there for many, many years. This idea that if you see an opportunity um, and it's a credible opportunity, and you have to get it signed off, of course, mm. but absolutely, and that's, I think, it bred that culture of entrepreneurialism yeah. within, with, within the group. We saw it across the board. We, we jumped into soft commodities in the uh, Timbercore almond, um, almond Orchard days, and that was because my boss was really excited by soft commodities as a great export opportunity for, for Australia, mm. and they started buying up farmland, almond orchards and, and the like, but it was a brand new idea. The support was there. We did a lot of work to convince uh, the principal team to, to invest, and off mm. we went. It's funny, one of the, um, the dumbest things I ever did was go to a special presentation by someone at Macquarie about a thing called, um, um, things that Transurban does, you know, motorways, paid motorways, right? And um, the Macquarie at that point in time was planning to get into motorways everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy basically said, this is going to be money for jam. And I just, I just did not see it as well as I should have. I've always been invested in Macquarie anyway, but I, that was like a classic example. They saw the future of motorways and the kind of money that would uh, actually mm -hmm. um, give them and it's really worked off really well. Now, the second question, I'm surprised I even remembered it, was <laughs> when you started off, one of your competitive disadvantages, which I always thought was a really good thing, was you, were, you weren't going to play as fast and loose with giving credit as Afterpay was. And so, in a sense, it, it kind of slowed down your growth because you actually put more credit checks on, on people who, who bought. Um, has that ended up being a, a good thing or something that you've been able to live with because you're now getting the growth? Yeah, look, when, when, when Pete and I came together to sort of found the business, um, there were some joint values around how we thought about this, this space of issuing microcredit in 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 real time yeah. and 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 of the and and as you do that there was a duty of, of responsibility and we've built that into into the dna of the organization not everyone is eligible for credit not yeah. everyone wants credit um, yeah. and we still find, want to find a way to kind of work with all 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 customers so it does mean you can't approve 100 percent of customers that mm. that that come through but it's always a, a balance between risk and reward uh, and we think we, we sort of have, have found uh, the right the right space we weren't in there for a one-year or two-year story it's about a, a long-term story this is a very large market opportunity uh, and the disciplines that we've put in place we think are really really important and mm. and have obviously weathered um, a lot of scrutiny obviously obviously over the last couple of years from regulators and and um, and so mm. forth and it's important I think the the coming together of, of um, innovation and also uh, b being mindful of the protections that they're, imp they're important to, to, to build into products. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the, the big story this week because, mm -hmm. you know, um, you're an you know, Australian company and you've now gone and bought, we had 15% of quad pay, didn't yeah. you? Yep. And you've now got a lot. Is that, mm -hmm. is that right? Yep. Uh, is it a New York-based business? That's right. Actually, a couple of Aussies yeah. moved across to America five years ago, set up shop in New York, yeah. when the buy now, pay later scene also hadn't really got going over there, saw mm. the opportunity, and in fact, the, uh, a bigger opportunity over there given the size of the market and yeah. a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the factors at, at, at play. And um, we actually inherited the, the, the stake from the acquisition we, we made last year uh, of PartPay, which was this global installment As a Kiwi business, firm. was it? Kiwi business yeah. out of Auckland. A guy by the name of John O'Sullivan started that. They're smart, that. those Kiwis, aren't they? They, 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 they do punch above <laughs> their weight. They, they do. They really do, yeah. <laughs> I've had many bosses who have come from New Zealand and, yeah. and very impressive indeed. So 
yeah, I mean, who would have thought, you know, a, a Kiwi business actually went went global mm. before Zip. And, uh, you know, we, we sort of partnered with them, inherited this strategic interest in QuadPay, and we're incredibly impressed by the by the guys. Yeah. Okay, so I guess that's, Elizabeth, the next question. Why is Australia, and uh, let's give the Kiwis some uh, credit here, why are they ahead of the game when it comes to buy now, pay later business? Because there was an American company that actually listed yeah. here to do buy now, pay later in America. They weren't even chasing our customers. I can't recall their name. I know I interviewed uh, them. Sizzle. Sizzle, yeah, yeah, I interviewed them on, on, yeah. on our, our program. Uh, but why are we so ahead of the curve on this? Yeah, it's a, look, it's it's a good question. I think there's a couple of factors at play here. Uh, one is the in, the world of interest-free was de definitely started uh, over here in Australia uh, many, many years ago, even before we came along, thanks to Jerry Harvey and, 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 and so forth. So creating the right product fit for the customer. Yeah. In countries like America, they did have these solutions, but they were interest-bearing. They, they charged customers interest. When you went into the store, mm. you'd basically have an interest-bearing installment. Yeah. So I do think the product fit was much, much better here. And so therefore, you know, and we've seen models globally change and adapt to, to this interest-free solution. I think the other critical factor is that we, uh, you know, particularly in the last six, seven years, uh, the ASX has been a great platform for supporting uh, early stage tech, mm. you know, access to capital, capital breeds growth, and obviously needs to deliver on the growth. So I think a mixture of those two things have been incredibly powerful. Would have been a lot harder, I think, if we were private over here, Yeah, candidly. And what about the role of big banks? Because like Westpac is, a, a, um, is, is it a shareholder in Zip or is it a funder? What is Westpac's role with you guys? Yeah, so we've, we've actually got two relationships with the banks. So Westpac is a, an equity shareholder, yeah. minority shareholder, and um, we actually have banking relationships with the National Australia Bankers as well. Because mm, yeah, like NAB had roles, I think, in Afterpay in the early days. So yep. my question is, our, the size of our banks, does that make it easier or harder to do something which I would have thought they would have loved to have bought you when you were really <laughs> cheap? <laughs> yes, yes, the big the big challenge is... A, is a, for, for big business in general. You know, the, you know the, the ability to innovate, the ability to move quickly mm. is incredibly challenging. And it's a function of uh, the technology infrastructure. If you have new built tech, you can move quickly, you can deliver new new products, and then the ways of working. Uh, mm. I think, you know, internally in big organizations, it's incredibly difficult. That's why startups become scale-ups that can take on, take on the big banks. Mm. What's the, you know, I always ask people who I'm, talking to who run companies that people can invest in. Don't worry about coughing, mate. This is a, a, a rough radio program. If you go cough, you cough. We're distancing. There's no problem at all, mate. We are, by the way, we should say we're, we're, we're more than three pizza boxes apart. So we're, Absolutely. Yeah, we're and we haven't even eaten them yet. So no, that's that's right. Uh, the, the, the question I think I, I have for you then is, uh, what's the potential in America? Given mm -hmm. the fact that we are ahead of the curve, mm -hmm. um, what kind of growth potential do you think is out there for you guys? Yeah. US, very large market, north of $5 trillion in retail. Uh, and that doesn't include all all payments. And, you know, more than 10% of that is is online. So you contrast that with the with Australia, retail industry of just north of $300 billion, And, you know, probably 10% of that is, is, is online. And what we're seeing here is, you know, one in ten customers are, are using buy now pay later. In some in some categories, it's even it's even more. One in one in five. And online checkouts that can be anywhere from twenty to forty percent share share of checkout going through buy now pay later rails. So, if we contrast that to the US, twenty times the market size, uh, incredibly incredibly large. And even the players that are there, 
who are a little bit ahead of us, some of the peers that you mentioned, you know, they might have 5 million customers. Uh, the quad pay team has one and a half million customers. Mm. So you can just see the opportunity there, but it's incredibly important to move quickly, mm. um, sign up the right deals and, and build strong And marketing, like you know, American advertising, nothing makes me more laugh more than going to America and watching you know, serious ads. They're so yeah. funny. But how are you going to market this? Because clearly you start with younger people, but I guess older people are starting to realise that you guys are okay, particularly as that they can manage to actually pay back their, their bill really quickly and not end up with any real cost. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, uh, there's a stat now, one in one in five are coming from the Gen X category. So, it, you know, for, for Zip well, Australia... Well, those old people, those Gen X people. <laughs> <laughs> How dare they? <laughs> right. The average average age of a Zip customer now is close to 35. So mm. it's really on, the, on that cusp between yeah. older millennial and, 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 and Gen X. So mm. our view is that this aversion from the credit card, the stat in the States, I read a couple of years ago, was the, the penetration for credit cards in the under 35s is the lowest since the 1980s. You know, and that's parents who have potentially gone through the GFC. And so these, these trends we see as, as, as absolutely continuing. Okay. I got, there's two questions I have to ask you. One is, what could go wrong? You know, because, you, know, you know, yourself, you're smart enough to know a lot of Aussie companies have gone overseas, look terrific here, and found it hard overseas. Yep. What could go wrong? So we do a, a pre-mortem. <laughs> Which is a, yeah. Well, because you're, you're a great CEO, Larry, yeah. you, you would do the risk management and you would work out the things that can go right and the things that can go wrong. For yeah. people who have invested or people that think of investing, yeah, I always absolutely. like to say, well, what, what could go wrong? So first and foremost, uh, execution risk mm. is, is obviously one and it's one that we, we look at for, for ourselves. Even if you've got a great product fit and you've got a great market opportunity, great unit economics, the ability for the management team to execute is, is one that's absolutely paramount. And even, even at Zip, if you look at our exec team, 50% are, uh, have been with us for less than six months. So we, we've brought in some new capability to help us on the, on the next phase of journey. So I think as you get bigger, being able to maintain the hustle, the velocity, the ideation at scale is definitely an execution point, right? So yeah. that's that's probably first and foremost. Uh, I think secondly, um, the the competitive threats. How quickly do the big elephants r respond? You know, mm. We are dancing like, like with Visa the elephants. And MasterCard. Visa, Mastercard, yeah. PayPal. They seem so slow, haven't they? Right, but God. no doubt they're all thinking about it. Yeah. Some of them have made investments in buy now pay later, so they absolutely validate the sector. Mm. But how quickly do we see? a response from the competition because yep. there are those that have deeper pockets mm. and more access to, to capital and uh, and uh, retailers. Mm, okay. And uh, my next question is um, when you look at the timing of this, some people would say, have these guys been um, advantaged by the fact that Australia got over the coronavirus threat fairly quickly, very quickly mm. compared to the rest of the world, and America still is struggling and retail would have suffered because of that and quad pay would have been exposed to retail. Yeah. Did, you, did you get a better price because of it, do you think? So look, we, we started working on this transaction about six months ago okay. and we we're about to pull the trigger pre-COVID. Yeah, okay. And as a board, we were living in very uncertain times. Yeah. And, and if you sort of contrast back just eight, 12 weeks ago, it's crazy to think where, where we all were. We mm. were sitting there coming into COVID, trying to work out what's the customer reaction going to be, yeah. both in terms of usage, but also in terms of credit performance. Mm. And I think what we've seen is really strong resilience to the sector, a flight to online, mm. and credit performance has actually been 
really good. Mm. Uh, that's not to say that losses won't increase over the next six months as mm. unemployment starts to fall through. But we've seen at Zip in April and May some of the strongest periods of repayments that we have ever seen. You know, mm. significantly above. So I don't know whether Australians are more, more responsible. They really, un, you know, and so these things are really positive, uh, positive factors. Uh, once we saw things recover and we saw the resilience, we were validated. Our long-term thesis for this sector still holds holds true. And and for us, it's important to go now because in a couple of years' time, the, uh, the industry might have got ahead of itself. Yeah. Great answer, Larry, but you didn't say whether you got cheaper because of co the coronavirus. I, I think we got a really, really good price. I think, I think we, we validated the value that the founders had built to the business. Mm. We also delivered a, because of the share price recovery of Zip, we actually were able to deliver a, a revenue and TTV accretive transaction, which I think mm. is really important for, for shareholders. So yes, I think you would argue is the recovery in the share price actually helped make, make the transaction more exciting. Okay, mate. Well, it's a great story. And uh, I know I'm an old-fashioned person who likes to always root for Aussies doing really good jobs, whether it be in sport or in business. And you're doing a great job. Congratulations. And I hope it keeps up. Thanks so much. So, Matthew Cleary, uh, can you tell us what you think is going to happen to corporate um, space needs as a consequence of the uh, coronavirus or COVID-19? Oh, look, Peter, there's, I think there'll be lots of different reactions to the, to the pandemic. Um, I think one of them, you know, if, if you think about some of the bigger organisations, the, the, the multi-thousand you know, staff organisations, I think one of the key things where already starting to hear about a little bit is a concept of decentralisation. So I think for some of those big organisations that might be able to set up satellite offices, move out to the suburbs, particularly for, for people that don't need to be in the in the, the central activity areas of our cities, decentralisation might, might become a big one. I think too, like for a lot of us, you know, our workplace strategies are going to have to change and will change pretty significantly. So I think you know, they'll, they'll, it'll be multifaceted. Um, and I think it's going to be different across different sectors. Uh, uh, Mark, are office sp spaces effectively going to become extinct for some businesses or <clears throat> parts of businesses? Look, that's an excellent question, Peter. And obviously what we've seen through COVID-19 with essentially enforced working from home has caused a lot of segments of the market and commentariat to ask that question. We think that it's extremely unlikely that the office is extinct forever as we know it. Certainly there'll be some change um, in the short to medium term. We'll see that some businesses through probably external um, effects as we are here in Melbourne, um, being told to go back to the office at a certain date, observe social distancing. Of course, there'll be a component of our workforce that will be required to work from home in the interim. But in the longer term, we think that the office uh, as a construct for businesses is going to remain paramount and a, core, and a core focus for corporates. But there's no doubt that some flexibility will emerge as a result of this. There'll be a broad-based larger acceptance of flexible working and flexibility um, from corporate employers, and they will most likely allow some staff um, to potentially work from home one to two, three days a week, every fortnight uh, to sort of maintain that. And as it falls through to their space requirements, that may have an effect. But of course, overlaying social distancing requirements, um, there might be an offsetting sort of characteristic there.
Yeah, I can see you nodding in agreement. Um, and, and certainly if you want to either add to or deduct from what Mark said. But on the same subject, do you think hot desking is going to become less a, less a cool thing in the modern office setting? Oh, look, I, I think the, the traditional hot desking models already died. Um, you know, because I think, I think with the experiment that we had probably through the early 2000s and even earlier in this decade, prove that just, you know, crude hot desking doesn't really work for most organisations. I think what we'll start to see is greater flexibility in office space design and office space strategy. So I think um, one of the key things we'll start to see is a lot more of different type of working typologies within, within offices. But likewise, you know, I, I, I do agree with Mark, I think we'll start to see a lot more flexibility in our workforces, which will be a good thing that will come out of this. You know, Urbis has had a, a fluid flex policy for nigh on three years now and we've had very little take up because I think people just felt it wasn't the right thing to do. Coming out of this, you know, all of our staff and now that we've invested in the technology and we've got that, um, all of our staff will feel capable of working anywhere, literally around Australia or around the world. I think what we'll start to see in some of our office spaces, and we're already starting to see this as a pretty strong trend, is much more, much more focus around client engagement, much more focus around collaboration, better digital platforms, so digital rooms for workshopping and collaboration and, and problem solving and the like. So I think what we'll start to see is some of those meeting spaces and those collaboration spaces take bigger, a bigger role in our offices with the back of house traditional working areas, probably also being much more flexible. They'll be much more agile. I don't think we're going to go back to a situation once we get through the initial pandemic where everyone still has a desk. We certainly won't be doing that. We're, we're, we're a big believer in collaboration and, and being able to work in an agile manner. But there will be a much bigger focus on that front of house, the corporate spaces, the collaboration spaces, the digital rooms, um, which again, you know, take up large, large amounts of floor space in our city buildings. So I think, yes, whilst there'll be a, a bit of a, a lull in demand for a little while, I think as we start to reposition ourselves, some of that demand will come back pretty strongly. Now, Mark, let, let me put this in a probably less office-like way, but is it, is it likely then that people who run businesses, let's call them CEOs, will, will look at the experience of um, COVID-19 and say, well, you know, you know I, I, I spend half a million dollars a year on my uh, leasing space um, and really, 15 or 20, let's say 20% of my staff are either boring prats who contribute nothing except for their brains. You know, uh, you know they're, they're not contributive whatsoever apart from the brilliance that they produce in their little um, office or in, on their desk. So we'll send these prats home and we'll have a 20% smaller workplace and therefore we might have a 20% cheaper, you know, uh, rental bill at the end of the year. A, do you think that's going to happen significantly? And then what's the implication for A REITs? A lot of the people watching this show are invested in some of the, the great A REITs of Australia. <coughs> do we expect that their, their, their annual earnings is going to fall, maybe this is the 20%, by 20%? Look, Peter, I guess, to your first point, there's no doubt there'll be CFOs, probably more so than CEOs, who have got yes. a very, very uh, a laser focus on, on P&Ls at the moment, but will be thinking, hey, maybe I can rip out 
10 or 20% of from our bottom line expenses um, if we sublease some space immediately. And I have no doubt that'll happen um, in certain markets. We're already seeing it in Sydney to a degree, reports of, of sublease space that's been increasing and, and our channel checks suggest that, that that'll, that'll be an ongoing trend into the latter part of this year as we see more corporates come back to the office and see how they operate in this COVID, post-COVID world and they adjust. Um, there was a survey in the US that said, uh, funnily enough, it interviewed over 500 CFOs or finance professionals and, and unsurprisingly, they did say that, you know, there'll be a percentage that'll never come back to the office and that was at about 5%. Um, we'll see whether that actually comes through to fruition. Um, times like coronavirus and the lockdown um, probably had a lot of a lot of businesses questioning their go forward outlook for office space. Um, it remains to be seen what will actually be pushed the button on in terms of making wholesale changes to how they use space. Um, I guess there will be some roles and some people may in fact in that IT space or in those less interpersonal roles um, where people are in their silo um, may actually want to work more flexibly from out of the office and businesses might impose that restriction, but it won't be a wholesale trend um, that'll impact large swathes of corporate office occupants. There's just too much um, benefit from corporate agglomeration physically in the office from a cultural perspective, for, from a mentoring and staff perspective um, and things like that. You know. We've been operating with Microsoft Teams. It's working extremely well. I have no doubt that the fact that we work together on a day-to-day -day basis and collaborate and have those relationships um, has made it easier for us to transition through this enforced period on working from home. To your next point, this period of enforced lockdown and working from home, as it relates to office landlords in the A-REIT space, there's no doubt there's going to be uh, an impact on rental earnings and top line revenues in the short to medium term. And the effects of something more structural playing through will just have to remain to be seen. But pleasingly, you know, we're coming from a, a point of view where the majority of the A rates are invested in Sydney and Melbourne CBDs. Um, we do, as, as Matt alluded to, uh, we do have some exposure in the A-rate market to offices in less centralised locations. So um, St Kilda Road, perhaps Macquarie Park, Parramatta, and I'd have to agree with Matt that decentralisation and um, might be a trend to get more, more space at a lower cost for those cost-conscious corporates as a result of this. Um, but there will be a, a recovery in use of offices. We're already seeing in Sydney um, people going back to work and um, the enforcement of the rental code being worked through some of the REITs that we invest in are, are giving guidance that look how small to medium enterprise exposure is relatively um, small. There might be, you know, 20 odd percent that are in that SME category and something, you know, in the, in the high single digits might have asked for some form of relief and they're working through that. Um, but a positive is that once we get out of this, um, it, it's, it's quite likely that um, that we'll return to a more more um, constant base of, of rental being received. One little thought that I had while I was listening to Mark is that you know all those people who might be sent home because they're boring prats or unfairly you 
name them, Mark, as IT people, but um, all these people I'm sure are going to beg their boss, can they come back to work full time when the kids are on school holidays? Like, to, to me, there are so many mates of mine who look like people like you, you two, who really found it very difficult to be productive while the kids were <laughs> demanding stuff over school holidays. Matthew? Yeah, and, and look, I, I am one of those people and I, I, I can't wait for the kids to get back to school. But likewise, I can't wait to get back to the office as well. <clears throat> and I think Mark, Mark touched on some really relevant points because I think, you know, the reality is whilst the CFO might say there's a, there's a little bit of a saving to be had here if we can sublease some floor space, the CEO and everyone else in the business who's there day to day to run the business, the war for talent is still going to be as, as fierce as it was in a year's time as it has been for the last five years. <clears throat> and one of the things we're all focused on as businesses in the large part is creating great environments for our people. And people are becoming ever more demanding and rightly so, that they've got great, great working environments, that they're, they're collaborative and they can do all the things that we want to do in our modern economy. I think the other thing to remember too is that, you know, our major CBDs in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Perth and the like, you know, a huge part of our, our national GDP flows through those core CBD areas. And I think the reality is, you know, for all of us, you know, we're all pretty competitive people. We want to do well in life. And I think, you know, it was Paul Keating who coined the phrase, you know, I'll, I'll bet on self-interest every time. I think the reality is once we can all get back there and start plying our trades and, and, and working and doing deals and, and being back in the market, I think you're going to see people want to get back into the, the, the CBDs of the, of the country pretty quickly. And I think whilst, yet, yes, we're going to go through a bit of a downturn from a rental perspective, that will be exacerbated by COVID, but the reality is in Melbourne and Sydney, we probably had some oversupply issues coming in the market anyway, which was a, you know, a direct response to the strong rental levels we've been having. So it's, it, to me, it's just part of the natural ebb and flow of, of the industry we're in and the markets that we're in. Yes, there'll be a bit of a tough time, but the market will respond as well. Um, you know, fund managers know that their job is to keep tenants in buildings and keep the rent coming. Um, so rents, rents will adjust accordingly. I don't think there's going to be you know, major blood on the streets through this. I, I think, I suspect we're actually going to get through through this a little bit better than what we, we think we might at the moment. I, I, I've got to say, you reminded me of Keating's comment. I think the actual comment was, um, if you go to the races and you see a horse called self-interest, back it because you know it's trying. <laughs> and, I, and I've always remembered that because I actually was a, a part owner of a horse once and they all asked us for a a name of the horse, and I said, call it self-interest. I want this thing to be bloody trying. Well, they didn't call it self-interest, and it didn't try. So no. I always remember that very, very well. All right, yeah. guys, to wrap up, I'm going to ask you both how you see your businesses being affected by this unusual period that we've all been forced to live, uh, live through. So, Mark, APM Property, how's it going to be affected, do you think? Look, I think, Peter, the, the focus for, for APM Property Group uh, since its inception has always been, of course, to invest our the money entrusted to us uh, in, in a philosophy of property for income. And that's basically um, maintaining a focus on risk and really looking through uh, to the sectors and parts of the market where we can see a relatively um, risk parity or lower risk exposure to commercial rental receipts um, that are growing and that can flow through to our investors who rely on that income and that leverage to a, a real asset class like the real estate sector um, to finance their retirement, um, to build wealth for their, for their futures. And that focus won't change. Um, there'll be some short-term opportunities, 
Um, we're, we're fortunate that we operate in an equity market for the funds that we manage in the real estate securities group and intrinsic mispricing is around us all the time and we're seeing opportunities on a daily basis um, and we've we've got tremendous support from our investors to to direct their funds to to those with um with a, an eye on the longer term and you know we're encouraged by the fact that that the COVID-19 crisis has perhaps um caused us all to to take a step back and get a bit more perspective on, on things personally professionally um, and how we invest and, and we're seeing some opportunities there for the longer term through this which is obviously as we know a health crisis it's not a broader economic um, crisis brought on by an imbalance fundamentally um, it's been imposed and and I think the resilience um, for us as a group um, albeit operating on Microsoft Teams and, and over the phone with one another will um, we'll really pay dividends in the future for our investors. So we're, um, we're very hopeful for the future and optimistic for us. Now, Matthew, just before we give us your take on Urbis, just those people who don't really understand what you guys do, explain that and then put in context what you think is the outlook for the company, you know, given the fact that we've gone through the coronavirus. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Yeah, look, so Urbis is a, is a consultancy and we really cater primarily to the, the Australian property industry and we do everything from town planning and design and real estate advise, uh, advisory investment market research and a, a whole gamut of things to service, you know, both local property investors and developers, but as well as internationals coming into the market. Look, one of the big things for us is, you know, we're really using this as an opportunity to reshape the business. So I think with any time of great upheaval, it actually really gives a great opportunity to let go of some of the things that you've been doing in the past that probably haven't added a lot of value and then to focus on the things that do add value that are going to add value for the future. So look, for us, we're pretty positive about it. You know, whilst we've, you know, we've been affected by, by, the, by the, the shutdown, the same as everyone else has. Um, we also see some pretty strong opportunities to actually reposition the business. We're certainly having a lot, a lot more focus on sector lines and looking, you know, looking down the sector lines and finding new opportunities there. Likewise, we're changing the way we organise ourselves internally to meet the needs of clients. So uh, again, we're getting away from our specific professional disciplines a little bit and really focusing on the broader market issues because the one good thing about this is and after you know after every long run that any market has um things start to get a little bit stale we all start to get probably a little bit lazy because things have been a bit easy um, and we're big believers you know that, that now's a great time to innovate and you know really set our business up for the for the next cycle um which hopefully will uh, will start the run pretty soon i, I can't ask um i can't ask mark this question because it'd be too self-serving but you know, given the fact that, you know, uh, A-REITs did cop it when the market sold off, do they look like good value to you now? Uh, look, in some areas, some areas I think they do, yeah. I think some of, some of the sell-off has probably been a little bit hard. Likewise, too, I think for Australia, I think because everything, you know, the health crisis has been so well managed here, I actually think we'll see a lot of our sectors bounce back a, a lot faster. Typically, what you do see in these sort of scenarios is the A-REITs probably get oversold at the start. And then you know they'll start to come back, and as, as things start to stabilise, we'll start to see that pricing come back. No doubt, no doubt that correction was warranted, um, but we're we're starting to see that you know in some sectors, some some asset classes are already being re-rated pretty hard, pretty harshly, but others are actually doing pretty well, and their their incomes are holding up, and there's still still buyer demand. The good thing we are starting to see is new uh, new equity lines coming in both from offshore. We're starting to see some pretty significant mandates, you know, with with, with genuine 
interest to buy, but we're also seeing some pretty strong mandates locally as well. Um, so it, it doesn't feel to us at the moment that it's going to be a, a really long, prolonged, horrible crash. I think we've probably we've had a short, sharp um, hit. I think the one good thing that the A-REIT should all be congratulated on too is they've taken the hit early and they've recognised that values and incomes are going to be down and they've reflected that straight away. They're, we know that many of them are getting monthly valuations to reflect that in their, in, the, in their accounts. And the good thing about that is it's going to reset much faster than they did in the GFC. In the GFC, they held on for far too long. So it's a good sign that we're going to probably hit the bottom a bit faster, which will allow us to take off for the future. And Mark Mazzarella from uh, APM Property, thanks for joining us.